Paul writes this little note to his favorite congregation in Philippi, and he tells us that he's writing this letter from prison. So I've been preaching this sermon series called Letters from Prison. Philippians is really nothing more than an ordinary thank you note from Paul to his friends who have sent him a gift. But in the center of this very ordinary personal note, there is this almost perfect poem or hymn to the meaning of Jesus Christ. It's one of the most beloved passages, passages of Scripture in the 2,000 years of the church from chapter 2. If then there is any encouragement in Christ, any consolation from love, any sharing in the Spirit, any compassion and sympathy, make my joy complete. Be of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility regard others as better than yourselves. Let each of you look not to your own interests, but to the interests of others. And let the same mind be in you which was in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a slave, and being found in human form, he humbled himself and became obedient, even obedient unto death, even death on the cross. Therefore God hath highly exalted him and has given him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bend and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Amen. Pray with me. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. James Fowler coined a phrase that has become important to me ever since I first read it 20 years ago. James Fowler talked about the sacrament of defeat. If you studied psychology or religion in college, you might have read James Fowler's James Fowler's 1981 classic, Stages of Faith. The sacrament of defeat. I guess it stuck with me for so long because it was so unexpected and counterintuitive, right? It's not quite, but almost an oxymoron, the sacrament of defeat. Augustine taught us that a sacrament is a visible sign of an invisible grace, right? Or maybe an earthly symbol with a heavenly meaning, so that the wine of the Eucharist or the, the water of baptism, these common human staples become vehicles of divine and sacredness. So, as its name suggests, a sacrament, a sacredment, is a vehicle for the sacred. Can your failures be vehicles of the sacred? We sports fans, this fall and winter have witnessed a great number of epic failures, right? Especially those of us who live in the upper Midwest. In October, Michigan punter Blake O'Neill fumbled the snap on the last play of the game against archenemy Michigan State, giving them the game on a silver platter. I don't know if you know this about me, but I'm a Michigan fan. That defeat did not feel like a sacrament at the time. But after the game, a reporter asked Coach Harbaugh whether the coach was surprised that Blake O'Neill was completely unvexed by this epic mistake. And Coach Harbaugh just glared at the reporter 
as Coach Harbaugh is wont to do. And he said, you don't know Blake O'Neill like we do. He kicked three punts to the 10-yard line of the Spartans in that game, and one of them went 80 yards. Adversity doesn't build character. Adversity reveals character. So Coach Harbaugh turned that defeat into a tiny sacrament. James Fowler says that only the wisest and most mature of us can turn a crushing defeat into an encounter with the divine. Or maybe you're not a Wolverine fan, maybe you're a Vikings fan, right? At the end of the wild card playoff game against the Seahawks three weeks ago, Vikings kicker Blair Walsh missed a 27-yard field goal, which in today's NFL is like missing an extra point and handed the game to the Seahawks as a belated Christmas present. Mr. Welsh, Walsh received several death threats. But over at Northport Elementary School, not far from Minneapolis, first grade teacher Judy Offerdahl was trying to teach her class the meaning of the word empathy. And so she had every one of her first graders write Blair Walsh a letter like this one. Dear Blair Walsh, Everyone makes mistakes sometimes. One time I made a mistake doing a cartwheel. I was embarrassed. You can help the Vikings win the Super Bowl next year. Your fan, Sophie. Judy Offerdahl turned that epic failure into a tiny sacrament. Miss Offerdahl, by the way, is a Seahawks fan. Ten days ago, in a game against the Houston Rockets, Detroit Pistons center Andre Drummond missed 23 out of 36 free throw attempts. 23 out of 36. It's the most anybody's ever missed in a game since Wilt Chamberlain missed 22 in 1967, almost 40 years ago. By the way, Golden State Warriors star Stephen Curry has missed 22 free throws all season long. 23 misses. He was so bad at the line that every time he tried to take a shot, the Rockets intentionally fouled him. And after the game, they asked him to comment on this breaking of a record, and not in a good way, and Mr. Drummond just said, we won the game. That's all he had to say about that. Last Sunday, Cardinals quarterback Carson Palmer had six turnovers all by himself. Four interceptions, two fumbles. I can't find any way to turn that defeat into a sacrament. I just hope he comes back next year. So from the ridiculous to the sublime, the best example of what I'm calling the sacrament of defeat might be that passage I read just a few moments ago. In this sermon series on Paul's letter to the church at Philippi, I've been saying that's really nothing more than a thank you note. And yet at the center of this perfect, of this ordinary little note is this perfect poem to the meaning of Jesus Christ. It's one of the church's most cherished scriptures in the last 2,000 years. And this is what's going on. In Jesus' life and in his death and most notably in those rumors of resurrection, Peter and Paul and their ilk discovered a life so transparent to divinity and so luminous of all that was high and noble about humanity that the only way to capture the wonder of it was to think of him as coming straight from God, God's self. His living and his loving, his courage and his compassion, his words and his deeds were so unexpected that they were terrestrially inexplicable. 
The first Christians said to themselves, our race and our planet could never have produced so extraordinary an individual. He must have come from somewhere else. They couldn't find language extravagant enough to convey the meaning of who he was and what he meant to them. And the only way they could almost capture the meaning was to say that this carpenter from Nazareth shared in the plenitude of God's own inexhaustible being. He was in the form of God, says this hymn. He was in the shape of God, the image of God. That lonely birth in a stable couldn't have been the first chapter of the story. He came from far away, lived with us for a time, and then returned from whence he came. And when you go home this afternoon to study this passage more deeply, as I know you all will, you will discover that many modern English translations of this passage set the text not as prose, but as poem. This is not prose, not an essay, not a thank you note. This is a poem, or maybe a hymn. It could have been sung at the beginning. Most scholars don't think Paul wrote it. He inherited it. It's an ancient Christian hymn that goes back maybe to the time of Jesus himself as close as we can get to Jesus of Nazareth. And I want you to notice when you go home this afternoon the shape of this narrative. It looks like an upside-down parabola. This is the shape of the story that hymn tells. It starts high, plummets low, and then returns to height. He was in the form of God, says the ancient hymn. The shape of God, the reflection of God. But he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself taking the form of a slave, and became obedient even unto death. It starts high, plummets down low. But then because of Jesus' obedience, God lifts him back up to height. Therefore God has exalted him and given him a name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Starts at height in heaven with God, plummets down to earth with death and slavery, and then goes back to heaven with God again. An upside-down parabola. Jesus took a crown of thorns and turned it into a crown of golden glory. He took a cruel cross and turned it into a scepter of sweeping sovereignty. They threw his bruised, broken, bloodied, battered body into a silent sepulcher. But three days later, he pulverized its hinges and walked straight into the palace of a prince. He took this defeat and turned it into a sacrament, a vehicle of divinity. Jesus knows about the sacrament. of Paul knows about the sacrament. He's writing this from prison. He will not emerge from this prison, but horizontally. He will never come out alive. But this is what he says. I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that my imprisonment has helped to advance the gospel. These letters from prison are incredible. They really are. Have you ever read One Day in the Life of Ivan Denisovich? My wife says that she read it in high school. I don't remember reading it in high school, and I went to the same high school. Maybe I was absent that day but a couple of you after the nine o'clock service came out the door and said we read that in high school one day in the life of Ivan Denisovich Alexander Zolzhenitsyn I reread it this week I think besides the Bible it's the only book I've ever read three times 157 pages long it took me three hours to read it 
Solzhenitsyn will not waste your time. Well, he wrote some obese books, too. He wrote the Gulag Archipelago, which stretches on to 2,000 pages. I started reading it in seminary 30 years ago, and I'm still not finished. But together, the lean Denisovich and the obese Gulag are probably the two most important books of the 20th century. Think of it. Uh, Einstein's theories of relativity, maybe. Oppenheimer's equations of the atomic bomb. Alexander Fleming's notations about this mold called penicillin. Zolzhenitsyn belongs into that revolutionary company. When he was a young man, Alexander Zolzhenitsyn was a loyal, patriotic communist. His young bride was jealous of Vladimir Lenin because Solzhenitsyn idolized him so. And then during World War II, he was a war hero, an artillery commander for three years, fighting on the front lines in eastern Germany. And then he sent a letter to a friend in which he poked gentle fun at Joseph Stalin. He called Stalin the man with the impressive mustache. And that earned him eight years in a Soviet prison camp. He survived by the skin of his teeth and then wrote a novel about his experiences in the Soviet Gulag and sent the manuscript for One Day in the Life of Ivan Denisovich to Alexander Tvardovsky, the editor of Novi Mir, a liberal journal in 1960s Russia. This was about 1961. And Mr. Tvardovsky was accustomed to receiving hundreds, literally hundreds, of unsolicited manuscripts at his editor's office. So one evening, at the end of a long day, he threw Solzhenitsyn's manuscript into his briefcase and took it home with him, intending to throw it in the circular file. And when he got home, he ate dinner, got into his pajamas, climbed into bed, and started reading. And he was so astonished by what he read that he left his bed, got out of his pajamas, put his coat and tie back on, and sat at his desk and stayed up all night to finish what would become a 20th century masterpiece. That was, he said, the only way he could honor this classic of Russian literature. And in that small book and in its companion piece, The Gulag Archipelago, Mr. Zolzhenitsyn tells us what he could learn about himself in no other place but here at the end of the world, in hell. He learns to leave his youthful arrogance behind. He learns to quell the cruelty and baseness he sees in his own heart. He learns to forgive and he learns to cherish life with every breath God gives. And at the end of one day in the life of Ivan Denisovich, he's able to tell us that he's still here. He has survived. He's still alive. And he will tell the story of the 50 million Russians who traveled through the Soviet Gulag. He was born on December 2, 1918. Which means, of course, that he is almost exactly one year younger than the Bolshevik Revolution. What would become the Soviet Union is one year older than Mr. Zolzhenitsyn, who died in 2008 at the age of 89. 
he outlived the Soviet Union by 17 years. It tried to kill him, but it couldn't. They banished his books for 20 years, stripped him of his Russian citizenship, and banished him from his beloved homeland. He lived in Vermont for 20 years. Today, the Gulag Archipelago is part of the curriculum in Russian high schools. It turns his defeat into a sacrament. When it's all over, he says, I look behind me with a grateful tremor at the life that I have lived. Though I renounced you, O God, you were always with me. So, I don't know what life has thrown your way. If you're like most of us, it hasn't always been easy. There have probably been laughter and tears, happiness and sadness, love and loss, victory and defeat. But the wisest and the best among us learned that through it all, God's been speaking to us, even in the sacrament of defeat, which might enrich your understanding shape your character, sharpen your virtue, help you to forgive those who have injured you, and amplify your love. And so may God bless you with many victories, but also with the sacrament of defeat. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Ghost. Amen.